We hear you. We're here for you. We stand firm and unwavering when we say Black Lives Matter. Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Hey there, VJ. How you doing? Hey there, hey there. Uh, it's July 4th weekend. Welcome to everyone. Right, that's right. Yeah, so uh, we're here with, uh, yeah, what was that? I just said barbecues abound. Are you, are you a fireworks type person? You enjoy the fireworks? Not so much, but um, especially this year, given the climate, I feel like mm-hmm. a little disappointed in what's been happening um, politically uh, with this country, but we'll get into that hopefully uh, a little later. Uh, our future guest is Carol Cooper, who is born in the Upper Manhattan um, to two so- school social workers and was raised in North Jersey until she moved back to New York City in the late 1970s. She graduated Connecticut uh, Wesleyan University um, with a uh, BA in English and interdisciplinary master's in liberal studies. Decades later, Cooper, Ms. Cooper, um, Dr. Cooper, earned her master's and her doctorate in uh, depth psychology with an emphasis in Jungian and archetypal studies at Pacifica Graduate Institute. Welcome, uh, Dr. Cooper. Hi, how are you? Hi, good, good. So I didn't, uh, I didn't get into, you know, you had a little bit more in your bio, but we'll get into that now. Um, I want to ask you now, you switched, um, you spent years as a journalist and a professional music critic, and then you switched or you kind of transitioned into um, you know, kind of the depth psychology and psychology. Tell us a little bit about that transition and how you start how, in, in your life story, how you, um, how you brought yourself, brought, uh, found yourself influenced by union psychology and how that journey began and how it brought you to that PhD in uh, Pacifica. Well, I'll tell you that I had been introduced to Jung relatively early because I was a big reader both in junior high and in high school, and I was already reading uh, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary work, which was actually the, conne- the main connection that I made to Jung, because once I started reading Jung, I think I started with the typical books that people start reading about him, like the, the memoir, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and also Man and His Symbols, which was the last official book that Jung was still alive when it was uh, when the project was begun, but a lot of his students also contributed essays to that book, um, which sort of advertised itself as an overview of Jungian psychology at that point in time, which was kind of the early 60s. So, you know, I was aware of the fact that of all the psychologists who were... Um, considered on the level of Freud and as famous as Freud, um, that Jung was the most diverse in terms of his interests and that he, his psychology was founded on the belief that every human activity is worthy of um, study by uh, a psychologist and that psychology is the lens through which most human activity needs to be viewed if you want to understand what we do and why we do it. So having had that background, as an undergraduate, I was a, was a, a writer and wanted to uh, publish both fiction and nonfiction um, as early as, an, as my undergraduate years. So I drifted into journalism as soon as I graduated college, largely because I had a lot to say. You know, I was a middle-class black woman um, from two educated parents, who was born um, 
basically just after Brown versus Board of Education was decided. So segregation was still very much a thing when I was a baby. Um, but it was those barriers were slowly being eroded and broken down through the 50s and 1960s. So I grew up, you know, really understanding a lot about injustice in America, a lot about uh, the illogic of racial prejudice in America and the illogic of gender prejudice in America, meaning that, you know, women were considered, you know, not fit to do certain things that men were perfectly free to do. So when I started writing, um, I discovered very quickly that if I wrote about art and culture, if I wrote about films, if I wrote, wrote book reviews, if I wrote um, about music, that I could be as political as I wanted to be in the context of critiquing the work of art. Um, this was a lot easier than me getting an editor to approve me writing hard copy investigatory stories about the same political subject. So I very quickly became an art critic simply because it was the way to uh, kill many birds with one stone. I could be as political as I wanted to be. I could be as radical as I wanted to be. I could be as insightful as I wanted to be and still be creative because I was working within you know, the artistic realm. And there were many publications in the early 70s and, and uh, early 80s that wanted that type of writing. So I was able to get a lot of work. Um, unfortunately, um, as everyone knows by now, uh, towards the end of the 20th century, print media started to feel the crunch because online media was making it more attractive for advertisers to advertise in other mediums. Not, not only online publications where they could get more, for, more exposure for less money, but also radio, television. Um, there was more bang for the buck there, too, than in most print uh, publications. So little by little, my outlets began to shrink. There were more and more publications that were transitioning to online-only publications, which was something I did not like because, as many people are aware, people can change. I mean, there are people, anybody who has access to the online publication, whether it's an editor or uh, a proofreader or uh, a bad actor of some kind, can change anything that's printed online. Whereas if you have a print publication, whether it's a book or a newspaper or a magazine, people can't go in after the fact and swap a byline or you know, change a paragraph or change a line. So I became very wary of online publication because of the potential for fraud. I wrote a rather long feature on Tupac Shakur for a, a online publication that MTV owned at one point in time. And a year or so later, I went back to look at the, at the article and saw that they had put another woman's name on my article. Mm. And that wow. was it for me. I said, I got to get out of this. Mm. <laughs> so I started looking around to see how I could transition out of something I loved and something that allowed me to do so many different things and talk to so many different people and explore um, many different disciplines to see if there was a PhD program anywhere that would allow me to do the same thing. Mm. And that's when I discovered the uh, depth psychology with an emphasis on Jungian and archetypal studies, uh, MA PhD program at Pacifica. Um, I went to a a, uh, a workshop where they introduced the program and talked about what it offered, what it demanded from the students, and the fact that it was a hybrid program. It was one of the first hybrid programs that Pacifica arranged 
whereby you had low campus residency. I didn't have to be on campus in California, but four times a, a year, and each time only for a week. Otherwise, I could do most of my, my classes and study and, 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 um, and research papers online on a weekly basis and stay in New York. And so that's what I chose to do. And I started the program in 2012, and I finished my dissertation in 2020. Excellent, excellent. So beautiful. It's such an interesting story, especially when regards to um, the uh, transition into online, as you're saying. You know, at that time, I remember there was the Drudge Report that came out in the 90s that broke the, um, I believe they're the ones who broke the Monica Lewinsky, um, if you remember. Uh, they were kind of fast. They were kind of like not checking their sources and such. There was a lot of like online publications that were coming out around that time that were just loose and fast. You know, that were yes. just kind of like, really like, on the fly, they weren't beholden to the kind of standards of journalism that, uh, no. that yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, and that must have been very frustrating, and like, for, for someone in the journalism field, and then as you, as you, as you cited, your own experience with them changing the credit, um, you know, kind of just so saying, you know, giving wrong credit, and all this kind of stuff, it's like, this, this is how journalism evolved, and I think I just want to underline that for the listeners, that yeah, I give you a, get a little more depth into that, and that how this kind of forced you kind of to reexamine. Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, you know, the, the thing is, is that you know, I like diversity of mm. all kinds, and I had no problem when there was an ample amount of print media alongside the online media, and when the so-called blogosphere began. Yeah. When you know everybody was basically publishing their personal opinions, whether they be on on the arts, politically socially, you know, just kind of ad hoc from the comfort of their own bedrooms. I wasn't threatened by that because it didn't pretend to be journalism. Um, I didn't think it was going to be taken seriously as journalism. This was just human beings expressing themselves, which they've done since the dawn of time, and they certainly have a right to do. But when newspapers and magazines started dying, when established publications that already had a reputation for fact-checking their sources and you know, if necessary, printing a retraction when they needed to, and, you know, had journalists already writing for them who had been doing the job for 20 or more years, when those started to disappear, mm. that's when I became alarmed. And I said, you know, I don't really see myself. I mean, first of all, it was not only the lack of professionalism that I saw happening with a lot of online journalism. It was the fact they didn't want to pay anybody. Yeah. You know, when you've been working at the same job for 10, 20 years and you've worked your way up to a certain salary because you've proven yourself, you don't want to be suddenly reduced to you know, the same salary that you were making when you first started. You know, that's, that's, that's not what you work for. <laughs> so obviously it was time for me to reinvent myself on some level whereby I could continue to pursue the, the, the kind of excellence that I wanted to pursue, you know, as, as, as a person who was serious about their career, but, and could keep growing, but could still make a living. Yeah, and also, I want to get a little bit into, now, you worked a lot with um, stylistically diverse R&B, rap, pop, and world music artists. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, you were saying art and music critic. Um, get a little bit, if you can get a little bit to that, about how uh, that kind of developed, how working with these artists to, uh, and, and, and artists and musicians um, kind of how I see the evolution of of that to from then um, over the years. Yeah. Well, one thing is that um, 
after I had been writing professionally for about five years for various different publications, I wrote for The Village Voice, for Rolling Stone, uh, for Elle magazine, um, for uh, uh, The Face in England, a couple of uh, uh, European magazines I, I freelanced for. Um, after I'd been doing that for a while, record labels started to pay attention to me mm. because what was happening was A&R, or Artist and Repertoire, is basically a talent scouting job within a record label. And in the 1980s, the sound of pop music was changing really fast, um, due in part to computer-mediated recording techniques that was changing the sound, drum machines as opposed to analog, um, the fact that you had uh, pitch shifters and harmonizers uh, and, and other special effects coming into use in the studio, which meant that you didn't have to be a great singer in order to make a hit record. All you had to do was be, you know, with the right producer and have the right song, and all of a sudden, you know, you could have a certain level of fame. So with all those changes going on, the record labels were looking for people who understood those changes, could articulate those changes to other people in the record company who had to promote these records, and who also were out in the street kind of hearing new artists and new songs and new styles of performance happening at street level. So as a, as a, as a freelance critic, I was doing all that. Mm. And when I went to A&M Records as the East Coast Director of Black Music A&R in 1985, it was as a result of three interviews that I did with um, older executives at the label who basically just wanted to debrief me on what I thought was the next big trend in popular music that was coming off the street. Because you're talking about the 1980s. So you're talking about hip-hop and rap artists that were coming along at that time. You're talking about alternative rock music that was coming along at that time. You're talking about a lot of so-called world beats which was basically international pop music that was either being sampled or quoted by British and American musicians, or they were um, ethnic artists who were collaborating with either American jazz artists or Japanese jazz artists, or um, even just, you know, uh, being, you know, being friends with and deciding to, you know, uh, uh, create music together. With, music, with musicians of other genres. So, you know, all of that stuff was happening, and it was happening at kind of ground level. Um, the, the major record labels, whether you're talking about Warner Brothers or Universal or uh, uh, um, EMI, you know, any, anybody like that, Polygram, they weren't necessarily on top of all these trends because they weren't out in the nightclubs or the 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 little uh, uh, bar band uh, venues where this stuff was being played and talked about. So I was hired and other writers like myself were hired to do A&R at both independent labels and at some of the major labels because it was thought that we might have our finger on the pulse of whatever was new that was happening. Hmm. And it was easy enough to get rid of us if it if we proved to be not good at our jobs and we didn't know what we were talking about and we didn't find a new artist for that label within a certain amount of time, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm curious to know, was there any aspect of interviewing these artists um, or was it pretty much crit critiquing the music itself? 
Because I'm curious to know if you learned anything about the personality, I'd say, of the artist. And if there was, both. yeah. And if there was any kind of, you know, common, common ground or, or, or what would make for a successful and, 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 um, and a good artist uh, based upon kind of their offstage demeanor or their, their personality? You mean what, what were my impressions of the artists themselves or whether or not whether or not that played good, into the fact of people. when scouting, you know, you can you can get into some impressions, but did that did that tie in kind of to um, the the success of an artist? For me personally, it's all part of the presentation. In other words, the the artists on the radio that I was attracted to, and the artists you know who had not been discovered yet, but were maybe performing live, you know, on some small level in the street. Um, they all had to have three elements for me. Okay. They had to have something thematically, either in terms of lyrics or in terms of uh, stage presence or in terms of why they were choosing the kind of music they were choosing to do that caught my interest. Um, they also needed to be able to attract an audience, attract a crowd. I mean, a lot of what was happening at that point in time was um, improvised. Mm. And whether and they were improvised in spaces where if you didn't like what was happening, you would just go into the next room. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, there were multi multi multiple uh, 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 locations in the same club where different things might be going on. And if you noticed that somebody was attracting a crowd or was, you know, proving that they were, could, could hold someone's interest, that would make you, you know, take them more seriously. I remember that during the 80s in particular, the role of the DJ, the person who curated music inside of a club space, um, became more and more important because they ended up being the person who would uh, develop and curate and point to the next trend. Mm. Um, And so, so, you know, I naturally made friends with a lot of DJs. Uh, I made friends with some retail clerks because the independent retail scene was also very, very important in the 1980s to uh, new music um, and to independent labels that were becoming very influential at that point in time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, as, as an A&R person, there were three things I looked for. I looked for charisma. I looked for whether they whether they were making music that meant anything that had any kind of message other than, you know, look at me, I'm great. Mm. And, uh, and I looked for someone who had, um, the, the, the ambition, the desire, you know, because even if you're only expending your own energy and not your own money and trying to make somebody a star, you don't want that to be, to go to waste. You want to make sure that the person wants it as badly for themselves as you want it for them so that they will work as hard as you need to work in order to get the level of stardom that you want to get to. Mm. I do want to also transition and circle back to continuing your journey into the PhD and, and, and um, how you, what you studied or what you ended up doing a dissertation that was published in 2020. And if you get a little bit into kind of how that, that uh, how these life experiences may be informed, kind of your ongoing studies and, um, and what was the focus of your uh, dissertation ultimately? Okay. Um, most people who are familiar with Jungian psychology know that one of his 
best known and also most controversial theories has to do with anima animus, right? Mm, yeah. Anima animus are two terms that Greek that 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 um, Jung himself used to describe or to de- denominate the male personality that also coexists in a phys- in in a uh, genetically determined female and the female pos- uh, personality that exists in a genetically identified male. So I guess, you know, fairly early on in the 20th century, you know, Jung was publishing papers in various different journals talking about anima animus as the archetype of the the female personality and the archetype of the male personality, respectively, right? Mm. But his attitude was that the, the formation of the human personality was in part a result of an archetypal interaction and an unconscious interaction between the anima archetype and the animus archetype. Now, one of, one, of, one of his theories was, I mean, you know, obviously he's talking about the fact that, you know, in terms of, of one's psychology, we contain both male and female attitudes and aspects, right? And, you know, this has been talked about and borne out to be true um, for a long time now. I mean, it's not just Jung that had this idea. I mean, this is an idea that, you know, is reflected in many um, cultures. You have the yin-yang symbol from Chinese culture that, you know, reflects uh, a shared male-female identity that is always in flux, always in transition. You have the... um, um, you have the idea of the um, the Purusha and the Shakti, or the 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 male and female aspects of uh, of uh, of Hindu philosophy. You know where you have you know an idea that you know the the male person or the Purusha represents matter and Shakti represents the energy that animates matter, and that you know and 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 you know I think. You know, one of the reasons that Jung spoke in terms of archetypes and looked for evidence of archetypes in religion and myth is because he said, you know, human beings like to interpret and understand things. You know, it's part of it's part of what differentiates us theoretically from you know other animals. And so, the ad- the basic attitude was that the archetype offer us templates. They offer us patterns of how we can, of, of how we can be conscious, right? Mm. So when we talk about developing a complex, most complexes are experienced unconsciously. And what Jungian psychology wanted to do was to develop ways through therapy to make us more conscious of our complexes. And by contemplating how those complexes may have embedded themselves in our, in our unconscious and how they relate to everything else that we've experienced since being born, we can then have more control over our own personalities. So I, I found this very fascinating, you know, as a concept, because 
you know, clearly, as children, we don't know necessarily why we behave the way we do. You know, scientists will say, well, you inherit certain you know, natural characteristics from your mother, natural characteristics from your father. But genetics alone didn't seem to explain why siblings in the same family had different personalities, you know, in the, although they had the same mother and father. It didn't seem to explain why one sibling might be said to resemble a particular ancestor. Oh, he acts just like grandfather acted, or she acts just like, you know, auntie so-and-so used to act. You know, those kinds of connections or those kinds of, of, of psychological retentions were still kind of mysterious. So the more I began to read in, 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 uh, in Jung's collected work, the more I began to understand that his particular psychology was trying to figure out what about nature, nurture, genetics, and the, and the unconscious. Because the main thing about depth psychology, as opposed to other forms of psychology, is that it believes in the absolute existence of the unconscious as a, as a realm as a, as a psychic realm, which, you know, we have some conscious access. And, you know, if you, if you imagine our conscious lives as being the tip of the iceberg, and then everything underneath the water represents what is potentially conscious in us, but is now unconscious and that we're trying to like, kind of like have greater access to then you understand the, the fascination that somebody might have with a psychology that purports to allow you to, un, to learn how to access all of that information, all of that knowledge that is just beneath the surface of our conscious lives. Mm. So, you know, that was kind of the attraction of, of depth psychology and, and more specifically Jungian psychology for me. And, you know, in 2012, when I started, you know, doing all the coursework, which means, you know, reading about Jung's uh, style of dream interpretation, reading about Jung's theory of the archetypes, reading about um, his theory of synchronicity, which is a meaningful coincidence, um, you start to kind of put the pieces together. And the other nice thing that I found about um, the tradition of Jungian psychology is that it's always evolving, it's always revising itself when it acquires new information. So when those of us who have worked and read the material and read, you know, the, the, the other heirs of Jung, because there are several generations of Jungian thought that's out there um, and available for people to study and read and decide whether they agree with the conclusions that those students uh, came to or not, mm -hmm. um, there's always room for more. There's always room for more theory. There's always room for more research. And, um, and that was interesting and fascinating to me also. Yeah, that's really great. And I think that uh, in one of our initial, um, of course, we know each other from the Christine Mann Library, which is the um, uh, you know, library uh, nonprofit in Manhattan, New York, which is established by the, um, one of the first psychoanalysts in uh, America who is in the tradition of Jungian psychology. Um, and it, you know, it's that you can find out more, listeners can find out more unilibrary.org. And so in one of our official correspondence about this show, you mentioned about, um, 
you know, kind of as a black female intellectual, uh, I, you interrogate the meanings of freedom and prosperity. And the, the idea of interrogation, like, uh, is, is kind of resonant with what you're saying. As students of Jung psychology, you, you interrogate the view of human development, structural theory of the psyche, and dynamic structure of forming the human psyche. So can you elaborate on interrogating, like, how, like, from what you were saying just now, um, how, like, using these theories um, or kind of using these theories as a, as a jumping off point, you're then beginning to get into a line of inquiry around um, the meanings of freedom and prosperity, specifically sentient, and how your identity kind of plays into that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, I can best answer that question by referring to an essay, an academic essay that I actually published in the Jungian journal Quadrant oh. in fall of 2017. Um, for that particular journal, what I did was I looked at a very famous rap song called Whatever You Like that the rapper T.I. had put out in 2008, which everybody will remember was the year of the big banking crash when, you know, basically the Bush administration and their financial cronies and the banking system of uh, the international banking system based in the U.S. Uh, pulled some shenanigans that basically didn't go very well and ultimately... Um, created almost a worldwide depression and that Obama and his first administration had to kind of dig us out from under. Mm. And I found it interesting that on the cusp, like in the fall of that year, um, one of the most popular songs was this song by a rapper that was, you know, blatantly pro-consumer capitalism, blatantly, um, you know, kind of talking about and glorifying the idea of money being, you know, all that anybody should want and think about and framing a relationship around, you know, a woman choosing a man only for how much money he has and only for whatever material things that he can give her. And I said, okay, it's time for me to do an essay looking at America's romance with consumer capitalism through a Jungian lens, but also looking at it as a critique. Because again, the song on the, only on the surface appears to glorify these things. The more you listen to the lyrics and the way the lyrics are delivered, you realize that it's a really, really complex meta-critique of not only consumer capitalism, but also how all of us are conditioned to think in a certain way about money and material possessions by virtue of how America evolved and the fact that America was built by slave labor. Mm. Arguably, all of its prosperity would not exist were it not for the forced kidnapping and enslavement of African people. Mm. And now you have the ancestors or the, the, the heirs, the... the, the, the um, the children and great-great-grandchildren of those enslaved peoples living in a country that still doesn't fully recognize their you know, equality and their humanity, but they are completely indoctrinated, some unconsciously and some more consciously than others, into the type of consumer capitalism that not only was the cause of their ancestors' enslavement, but also is the cause of the uh, cultural complex that all people who live in America, come to America, and, you know, were born in America, 
have around money and possessions. Mm. So, you know, my way of interrogating wealth and privilege and social justice came together in this essay that really was nothing more than a, a, a music critic's analysis of a particular song. And I was really, really proud of it. And, um, you know, I think it represents the best of what can be done if a person who is schooled in Jungian psychology takes a Jungian lens and looks at a very, very complex issue or problem and decides to use Jungian principles to dissect it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it reminds me a little bit, that reminds me a little bit, I was trying, I was thinking this as you were mentioning about the, your dissertation, um, how the movement towards the non-binary, um, like, you know, we have these movements, we have these movements like, in, and there's so many different movements that are potentially, um, we could discuss, but I, this kind of resonates with me right now. But, um, you know, as we start to move towards going beyond the binary, uh, is there anything that can be informed? How does that inform your, or how does that uh, speak to the Jungian idea and how can that be interrogated in the lens of anima animus? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, it's, what's interesting to me is that Jung died in 1961. Mm. So it's kind of at the very, very beginning of a worldwide Western awakening to different possibilities in sexual expression, sexual freedom, gender freedom. Um, and we have to remember that Jung was Swiss. And Switzerland did not allow women to vote until 1977. A lot of people you know, forget that. So Switzerland has been kind of retro and very, very kind of conservative in terms of gender rights. And I just saw in, uh, the, in the news uh, this week that I think Switzerland just uh, passed some laws allowing same-sex couples to, you know, exist and have equal rights and stuff like that. I don't have it up in front of me, but it was, it was a very recent development where they're, they're trying to come into the 21st century slowly but surely. But the Swiss, you know, are not naturally early adapters when it comes to a lot of these, these uh, social changes. So I find it interesting that a lot of young students began through their own research and through their own embrace and interrogation of the anima animus theory, where we're all non-binary, you know, psychologically anyway, um, to basically be pioneers in this whole idea of a, of a non-binary uh, gender configuration that um, should be socially embraced as the, the, the larger reality, the, the larger human reality, shall we say. Mm. Yeah, I was just, I tried to Google that quickly just to see about LGBT rights in Switzerland. They mentioned that hate crimes against LGBT on the rise in the May 2022 article. Um, but then they also acknowledged that uh, some voter prote- some uh, legal protection was given in a l- couple of years ago, 2020. Uh, Switzerland votes in favor of protection laws. Um, so it seems like they are, they are, they are. But I mean, we're also are kind of going back and forth in America between um, you know now we have the Supreme Court um, overturning of Roe versus Wade, and then then uh, I understand that. Um, Clarence Thomas, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas is like saying that he wants to revisit 
you know, LGBT protection, uh, marriages or marriage laws as well. Um, and all this, uh, and all this kind of movement towards, uh, reversing, if you will, a lot of the progress being made in the past few years. And, uh, I do want to get a sense of with Obama, you know, Obama gets a lot of love and a lot of criticism around his, um, administration. Uh, you know, I, I think that his movement, was creating a lot of uh, identifying, you know, a lot of like a lot of galvanizing of the Black American uh, population, as well as everyone. I mean, we all kind of loved the fact that he was such a charismatic leader, and he was so, um, you know, kind of uh, his personality was so impression. He was a gentleman. Yeah, he was, he a, gentleman. was a gentleman. Yeah. But what do you think ultimately is the history will look back on him as an administration, but as far as like his his ability to. Um, push forward the, if you will, the agenda that, or the, I don't even call it agenda, that just keep in time, keep in touch with the movements of the people. Like, what do you think about his ability to, his ability to, and legacy, his legacy, in regards to his legacy, be able, his ability to speak for the people, you know, or, or move for the people? I, don't know. Yeah. I think Obama's problem is the Democrats' problem in general, mm, particularly yeah. now. Yeah. Um, because you know, there was a lot of expectation when he was elected among the more um, left of center and, and radical elements within the Democratic Party that he was going to bring the fire and thunder, that he yeah. was going to, you know, now that he had the power, that he had been uh, elected and therefore had the public mandate, that he was just going to go in there and be a disruptor. Yeah. And they were completely disappointed. And to a certain degree, I was too. Um, that he did not do more mm. in his first four years and then also in his second four years to promote the agenda that he seemed to be in favor of when he was running, first running for election. Mm. Now, you know, we know of his background as a community worker. We know, you know, that he, I mean, he personally is probably a lot more left of center than he ever admitted to being once he was in office. I think a lot of those compromises he made were, were due to a certain amount of fear. Mm. Um, I can't swear to it, but if I had been him, and if I had been the first black American president elected against really, really vocal, nasty opposition from the far right that I would have been wearing a bulletproof vest every day mm. and I would have not expected to have survived my first term. Yeah. And if you're working under those kinds of anticipations, it might shape your decision somewhat. The other thing was that he had a bunch of uh, counselors and, uh, uh, and a cabinet that also counseled him to moderation in a lot of things. Mm. Um, there are things that we think, that, that I think, and then those people who are more radical than I am think he should have done, that he did not do and perhaps could not have done. Mm. We will remember that Mitch McConnell and his, you know, Senate faction vowed they would not approve any initiative that Obama or the Democrats brought to the Senate during the entire time of his presidency. They said that. Yeah. 
they caused the government shutdown twice mm. because they refused to collaborate and work with the other side of the aisle. And somehow those people are still in office. That I do not understand because we have a two-party system not because those two parties are irreconcilable with one another, but because they're supposed to work towards compromise. If you have people who say before they even before you even start legislating that they are not going to work with you and they, that they are not going to allow any agenda that you push forward to go through before you even start, those people should not be in office. Yeah. There is something really criminal about that. And somehow this country failed to identify this lack of willingness to cooperate and collaborate as treasonous. And I think it was treasonous. Um, yeah, so then, uh, oh, yeah, the, uh, I'll read some of the, I'll, I'll just quickly give a station ID. Uh, this is the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're here with uh, co-host Scott Raven and, um, Special guest Carol Cooper, Dr. Carol Cooper, PhD in unions in archetypal uh, psychology. Um, let me just quickly uh, read a little bit. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations of listeners like you. Every dollar helps to continue to stay on air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We have a 5013 senior nonprofit and organization. So all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at slash donate. Um, if you're an Amazon shopper and like to donate in a way that costs you nothing, go to readyforbooking.com slash Amazon and register Radio Free Brooklyn as your Amazon Smile Charity. Every time you shop, a portion of your purchase benefits to Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, if you're listening in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android. Please develop the App Store for iPhone and Google Play, for, Google Play Store for Android. Um, please support, subscribe to our monthly newsletter, latest news about new programming, upcoming RFB events. Thank you. Um, so now, yeah, so then, uh, continue this conversation about returning to some of the, um, psychology and, and the ways in which, you know, we have these elected officials. You were mentioning about how elected officials, um, you know, it's like, it's interesting to me that they're like, you know, we, we, we look at the person individually and their psychology. Like, for example, Trump is a lot of times, um, looked at, uh, through psychological lens, but uh, you know, it's more about the structures around him, I believe, than the person himself. Although that does play into a factor, like you know, all these people are seem the people of voters. As you were mentioning about um, how these people staying in power, you know, and and you know their their personality. Like Obama was very polished; he would want to present himself in a certain way, as like a, a, a in a professional light, as a negotiator as someone who wanted to compromise and wanted to find common ground as an ambassador to the other side. He wanted to make progress through negotiation. And then Trump was like coming in as in that, in that same vein of what you were saying, he came in like arms swinging, you know, kind of doing these, all these executive orders to, to further the conservative quote unquote conservative agenda. Although he kind of advanced that agenda from, you know, the Reagan days, he advanced it into, um, you know, different realms that, that some people might consider more aggressive in regards to, you know, one of his first actions was the anti-Islamic ban, um, you know, the ban against uh, travel and uh, against Muslims. Um, so it's like he was coming and swinging, doing executive orders and, and, and pushing forward the agenda very aggressively. Um, 
But then, you know, yeah, all these people are supporting him. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He was not there to compromise. He was there just to, you know, and, and he had the backing of the wall of his, a literal wall of, of uh, you know, kind of stubbornness. But then he was also trying to push for that wall that didn't go through. Um, but then it's interesting, like, what do you think about this mass psychology? And how can it apply to, how can we apply Jungian understandings to, like, this group psychology? Um, and how, yeah, what do you think? Yeah. There, there are two things that we need to look at um, when we look at, you know, the, the political troubles that we're in now. Um, Jung had a theory called enantiodomia, which is a Greek term, which, uh, to describe it briefly, it means that everything that happens happens along a continuum and a pendulum swing. When events in human affairs move as far as they can in one direction, they, it automatically then starts to move equally as far in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. So after you have a certain uh, amount of, you know, peace in a country and everybody's getting along, after a certain amount of time, all of the antinomian, chaotic elements that have been kind of quiet or kind of unconscious, we might say, for a while, start to wake up and percolate and push their way to the surface. And then all of a sudden, what used to be kind of peaceful and calm and nice starts to become agitated and chaotic and, 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 and antinomian, right? Mm. So if you believe that this theory of events being part of a, a, of a moving continuum, a constant flux of, of a pendulum swing to, from one extreme to the other, then what we're going through now is natural. It may be unpleasant, it may be undesirable, but it is a, a natural function of, um, I hesitate to say metaphysics, because metaphysics has the connotation of being kind of, you know, woo-woo, supernatural fantasy. But it is a type of physics. I mean, it, it, it's almost like, it's like uh, uh, relativity or string theory or, 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 or quantum theory in the sense that you have an assumption of the way the cosmos works, the way it operates above and beyond human control, that we then somehow have to interpret and fit into and cope with. And enantiodromia starts to be that kind of phenomena, um, much like synchronicity, where, you know, we can't control synchronicity. We just theorize that it exists based on empirical evidence. You know, when we, when we have a dream of an old friend that we haven't seen in years calling us and the next day we either see them or they call us or we get a letter from them, that would be an example of synchronicity where, you know, somehow there is some kind of cosmic connection between, you know, your anticipation of an event or some kind of symbolic uh, uh, prediction of an event, um, whether it be tarot cards or or astrology or any of the other you know uh, uh, forecasting methods that people uh, uh, like to indulge in these days, um, Jung believed that you can use those things. You can use astrology. You can use the I Ching. You can use um, tarot cards. Any of these predictive methods to put you in contact with the unconscious to the point where, the, 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 to use a physics term, the strange attractors, 
you know, the entanglement theory will then kind of pull those things to you that you are, you know, that, you, that you have symbolically evoked, right? Mm. So, you know, perhaps some of the turmoil that we're going through now is, you know, unavoidable. When Russia invaded Ukraine, one of the first things that people started to say is, oh, Europe had, you know, 40, 50 years of peace. And isn't it horrible that we're being dragged back into a land war? We haven't had one of these in half a century, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, you know, what I was thought at that point in time is that, well, yeah, but, you know, it's not like those impulses that the, the, the emotional and psychological impulses to war had gone away. Mm. They had gone underground. You know, they had submerged for a while, and now they're coming back up, and we are seeing what happens when you don't pay attention to something once it disappears from from the conscious conscious level. Yeah, I do want and to give... Why, oh, sorry. And, that, and that's why Jungian psychology and the study of it is so important right now, I think, because he kept on saying it should be possible for us to pay attention to things before they reach the crisis point. To, to, to anticipate the pendulum swing from one extreme back towards another so that we can engage with it in a more uh, 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 satisfactory and less disruptive manner. Yeah, and I, I do hope that we're, you know, taking, you know, they say one step, was it like two steps forward, one step back? We're ultimately making one step forward, though, because, you know, like when you look at the context, um, you were saying that you're, uh, you know, in a previous interview, Stuff you're saying, your great great grandparents on both sides were born during the American practices of child slavery, um, and that's that's like that really. And people think of slavery as so long ago, and you know right. this, the distant you're know, like we're beyond that. But this is puts it in context. This is not that long ago, and uh, segregation, as you mentioned, was not that long ago. Um, you know, we're, this is really like recent past. And I want to underline that for the listeners because. Anybody who's out there who might think like, oh, you know, we should get past that. Um, this is not the case. And if you comment a little bit about whether or not, um, you know, are we are we even taking steps forward? Are we just taking steps? You know, it feels like we're, we're just in this dance, this little cha-cha. We're going more steps backwards than we're going forward. I don't know. Well, it goes back to another Jungian concept, which is that of the cultural complex. You know, I said enantiodomia was one Jungian concept that applies to where we're at now, and uh, the cultural complex is the second concept that applies to where we're at now. Because uh, Jung believed that every nation had a kind of a kind of atmosphere of its own based on all the events that had happened on that ground. He believed very much in a concept that, you know, some you know, tribal peoples would call sacred ground, where, you know, the place where cultures are born, where nations are born, um, they create a psychic field that then influences everything else that enters that sacred ground. And so if you take that to heart, then you have to realize that the events and the consequences of shadow slavery don't just affect black American people whose ancestors were slaves. It affects every American, everyone born here, everyone who relocates here, and everyone who chooses to live here. And that becomes a cultural complex. So, you know, the whole idea of a hierarchy 
of worth based on color is part of that cultural con- uh, complex. The whole idea of the fear of the foreigner, the fear of the invader, the fear of being replaced, that is also a consequence of the fact that America was created by invaders, mm. by interlopers. You know, yeah. the, the Europeans who came to the so-called New World came with the anticipation of taking this land for themselves, regardless of whether or not anybody else previously owned it. Mm. So somewhere in the unconscious of every American is this, you know, ancestral memory and perhaps ancestral fear of being invaded, taken over, slaughtered, you know, erased. You know, I mean, even if you are genetically a child of the of, uh, of the invader or the immigrant, you still, because you live here, have absorbed the feeling of the aboriginal American that they went from one day living on their own land in relative peace with everything else around them to having to fight for every inch, every scrap of land and every scrap of their own culture against an invader whose intention was to erase them completely from the landscape. Mm. So I think a lot of the deranged political tactics and rhetoric that we hear now are, you know, these little like weird manifestations of the cultural complexes that come from living in America, being born in America, that has a history of genocide and political injustice going back to its own, to its very foundation. Yeah. You know, this doesn't mean that other things don't exist also. I think that the founding fathers had some very, very, very elevated and, you know, magnificent ideas about how to create a more democratic society. But these ideas existed right alongside the genocide and the exploitation and the disrespect for nature. Yeah, and also I, one of the one of the moving book for me to read was my grandmother's hands, racialized trauma and the mending of our bodies um, and hearts, which dealt a little bit with uh, all the racialized trauma that lives not just in um, non-white bodies but also in white bodies. Um, in the yeah. sense of like, there's a lot of racialized trauma from Europe and the persecution of European, you know, all the persecution that happened in Europe that made them flee to the New World. Um, yes. that's part of it as well, according to his thesis. Um, you know, and then also, of course, the, the, the haunting of the, of the guilt and, and shame that comes with, uh, slaughtering a population and enslaving a population. Uh, a lot of that trauma around, there's a lot, you know, when, when, you know, as they say, the old, uh, stupid cliche about this hurts me more than it hurts you, uh, when someone's abuser is like kind of yes. calls to mind because it's like, it, it hurts the abuser as well. It caused some damage to the psyche of the abuser. Yeah. It does. It does. It does. And, and, you know, all those little adages like, you know, hurt people hurt people, Mm. you know, all of that is is empirically true. You know, and and, and a large part of that happens because we are not aware of how the mind works. We don't study it. We don't, you know, we don't prioritize doing the kinds of things that might, you know, heal or ameliorate you know, the, the, the complexes that are basically using us as puppets. Mm. You know, when you have an unconscious complex or a, con- or a complex that you are not consciously aware of motivating you to do certain things, 
you're you're like a puppet. You're you're the, the unconscious is like forcing you to do things that you're that you yourself, if you were fully aware of where this stuff is coming from, would not approve of, and would not want to be manipulated in this way. And if a if a person were forcing you to do this, you would you would fight against it. But because it's your own mind, your own unconscious impulses, you know, you don't even know how to to, to fight against it. Yeah. There is a a Jungian practice called active imagination, which is kind of a meditative type of daydreaming. Um, that's how I describe it, even though that's kind of inaccurate. I mean, those those terms are not, you know, precise enough to really describe what Jung uh, wanted us to do. But for the purposes of this interview, I'm going to use it simply because he said that one of the ways that you can find out what your personal complexes are is that you can invite an internal dialogue with your ancestors, with, you know, uh, any... Any archetypal icon, whether it be like a wise old man, a priest, uh, if you if you live in Massachusetts and you feel that you know that that you know maybe you're living on land on which women were burned as witches, and maybe mm. you want to have a dialogue with the historical consciousness of a woman accused of witchcraft who might have some feelings about that, you can imagine that dialogue just as if you're writing a story. Yeah. So the same people who are playing like Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, Magic the Card Game, you know, the same kind of story building, the same kind of, of, of imaginative license that you take to imagine being somebody else or being a historical figure or having a dialogue with a historical figure, you can do with your own ancestors. Thank you, thank you. So now we're, we're heading to the end, Mark. Um, I just want to wrap up uh, the show any last comments, any last thoughts, and then we'll, we'll end. We have about a minute left, so maybe there's not even time for that. But um, well, thank, thank you, thank you thank so you. much for being Goodbye here. Me. This has been a great interview, and um, I think definitely when we think about identifying the, the source of our views, the source of our, of our opinions, that's what I think I got out of that is a, a looking, looking backwards uh, and yes. inward and inward. Yeah, thank you. And using the imagination to do it. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, thank you, Scott. Thank you, you, Dr. Cooper. Cooper, Thank you much. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye.